Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you're new, I should warn you that today is the last message in our look at the life of Solomon, and this is where it all blows up. <laughs> We've been in a series called Cracks in the Foundation, and in today's passage, we come to the place where the cracks begin to open right up before us. In Solomon's story, as a king was told to explain why Israel was carried off into exile, and it helps us to examine the cracks in the foundation of our own lives so we can deal with them before they spread. Today, we're looking at the anger of God and his judgment. And obviously, these aren't most people's favorite topics to consider. Maybe the account of Justice Daniel Rozak will get us thinking in the right direction. On this particular day, Judge Rozak was trying Jason Mayfield for a felony drug charge. Mayfield pled guilty. But as Rozak began to announce the sentence, the defendant's 33-year-old cousin, who'd come to the courthouse to support him, let out a loud and poorly timed yawn. Mayfield was given two years probation for his crime, but no jail, jail time. His yawning cousin, however, was cited for contempt of court and given the maximum penalty of six months in jail. The cousin was outraged. People were shocked. And everyone wanted to weigh in with their opinions and perspectives on whether justice had been served. Some were calling for reform. Some spoke up in favor of proper order. The judge's sentencing statistics were analyzed. But in the end, the incident left us with more questions than answers. Is there justice in our world today? Is it too conservative? Is it too liberal? Is it too strict? Or is it too lax? Should it be up to a person to decide? Should our justice be based on the Ten Commandments? Or Sharia law? Or popular opinion? If you haven't noticed, people struggle to agree on these kinds of questions. And even if we could all agree on the rules, people still make mistakes. Innocent people are still convicted and criminals still walk free. If there isn't a God who brings ultimate judgment, what hope is is there for justice? If there isn't a God with righteous anger at this world's evil, then we're left boiling with our own outrage. And we're suffering from the effects of far too much of that already. Today's passage deals with the anger of God. It teaches us why God gets angry and how. And it does so not just so we can speculate about abstract concepts of justice teaches us about God's anger because each of us has to deal with it. We need to understand how his anger works so we know whether we are or are going to be on the receiving end of it. So turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, and I'll read verses 9 to 13. If you don't have a Bible, just click on the link for today's passage in the description below. 1 Kings 11 verses 9 to 13. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, 
I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. This is the word of God. Now, this passage gives us the who, how, and what of God's anger. Let's start with the who. God is angered by people who turn from him. He doesn't lash out at people who yawn inappropriately. And he often seems to show incredible patience and mercy. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't see or that he doesn't care. God is angered by people who turn from him. Verse 9 just begins with these words. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Now, if you're just joining us or if you're new to the Bible, you might be tempted to think, that's what turns me off about religion. God's always angry about something. But we spent the summer walking through 10 chapters concerning the life of Solomon. And what we've seen is that God has blessed Solomon at every point and given him every possible opportunity. When he came to power, God appeared to him and asked him to name his wish. When Solomon asked for wisdom, God not only gave him that, but promised him unsurpassed riches as well. He gave him peace on all sides, a massive trading empire, and everything his heart could want. And yet at each step, we saw that there were cracks in the foundation of Solomon's life and faith. He put his trust in his military instead of his God. He put more energy into his own house than into God's house. He used his wisdom for himself instead of for others. And he abandoned all self-control where money and women were concerned. At each, each step, it seemed like God didn't care. It was as if he didn't notice. And yet, obviously, he did. There were warnings. But apart from that, God patiently let the cracks in Solomon's life turn into chasms until finally he revealed his anger when Solomon turned away from him. Notice that the greatest sin you can commit isn't polluting or seeking an abortion or eating pork or slandering someone. It's turning away from the Lord. That's why Jesus said that the greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. What seemed like cracks in the foundation of Solomon's life were really just symptoms of something deeper that was going on beneath the surface. He still made impressive religious offerings. He still prayed eloquent prayers. But the love was fading. His heart was turning. And eventually he was giving himself to other gods. Inevitably, the pandemic will end and we'll realize that the same thing is true of some who called Grace Baptist their home. We'll wonder how it happened, but we really shouldn't. It starts when you begin to cut corners on God. You justify not making an effort. You take a vacation from fellowship. And the temptation feels more powerful than it used to. So you give in. And before you know it, you're in a place you never dreamed you would be. Your heart's turned away from the Lord. Your faith is cold and your religion is empty. Do you see yourself on that slide? Can you see that the cracks are real, but you just don't seem to care enough to do anything about them? The warning of this passage is that the end of that path is judgment. 
It ends with the anger of God. So make things right with him now while you can. Hear the warning of scripture in Nahum chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Or in Psalm 7, where it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. The teaching of scripture is that God feels that indignation every day because he constantly faces people who are rejecting him and ignoring his will. But when you read these verses, you have to ask yourself whether God has anger issues. Is there something wrong with a God who feels indignation every day? I actually went to WebMD for some help on this. <laughs> it describes how doctors define problematic anger, when, when they would define someone as having anger issues. One of the key issues is whether you're able to control your anger, whether your anger makes you say or do things that you end up regretting afterwards, or whether small or petty things make you angry. But none of these things is true of God. In fact, the scriptures repeatedly remind us of his patience and his mercy. Exodus 34, 6 calls the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God's anger is always temp tempered by his mercy. He doesn't have a short fuse. In fact, he's so slow to anger that people assume they can take advantage of his grace. And his anger is always guided by his perfect knowledge and perfect wisdom. It's not a product of partisan politics or cultural or ethnic bias. It's based on his revealed word. So no one needs to be surprised that God's going to get angry at them for yawning at the wrong moment. Isn't a God with this kind of anger exactly what we need? Isn't this our only hope for ultimate justice? Miroslav Volf came to think so. He used to think that the idea of an angry God was barbaric. But he wrote this. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million people were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love, he said. God is wrathful because God is love. When you've been through war or seen the evil of this world firsthand, it changes how you see things. So God doesn't need anger management classes. His anger is an expression of his love. Because if he isn't angered by the evil of this world, it would be a mark of his indifference, not his restraint. But God's anger is directed against those who turn from him. Those who have rejected his authority over their lives because this is where sin ultimately stems from. So the who of God's anger is those who turn from him. 
The how of God's anger is squandered grace. God's anger is proportional, not just to our sin, but also to the opportunities he gives us to turn from it. God is angered by squandered grace. If you watch closely, this principle is actually baked into how this passage is told. For example, did anyone find it strange when I was reading verse 9 and describing the Lord's anger and how Solomon had turned from him, that it said, His heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Isn't that a little odd? Why does it call the Lord the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice? Well, first of all, it was because Solomon was Israel's king. So if anyone should have known the will of the God of Israel, it was him. He was commanded to read and meditate on the scriptures daily. But Solomon wasn't just Israel's king. He was the guy to whom God had personally appeared, not once, but twice. There are only a handful of people in scripture with these kinds of direct encounters with God. But God had appeared to him at the beginning of his reign when he offered him anything he wanted. And he also appeared to him after Solomon dedicated the temple. Each time, God answered his prayer and blessed him. But also, God commanded him to follow his will. That's why it says in verse 10 that he had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. And then in the rest of the verse, it tells us, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. The point is that God had made two unforgettable visits to Solomon. He had blessed him, answered his prayers, and warned him not to turn from him. But he did it anyway. And the message is that the more you know, the more you're responsible for. The more God has revealed to you, the more that he expects from you. Jesus warned of the same thing in Luke 12, 48. That's where he said, Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. We almost never think of justice in these terms. We like to compare ourselves with other people instead. We justify all kinds of sin with the reassurance that there are people who are far worse than us. But the fact is that we've been given far more opportunities than most people. I live with the realization that there are some people who will spend years listening to me teach the Bible week in and week out who will never truly turn to the Lord. They'll content themselves that they're pretty religious, but there's no evidence of growth, no evidence of life, and no evidence of genuine faith. And what's so troubling is that with each sermon they ignore and each opportunity that they pass up, their judgment only increases. God is angered by squandered grace. And this entire series has been God's plea with us for self-examination. As we've looked at the cracks in Solomon's life and where they led to, God's been trying to persuade us to see whether there aren't cracks in our own relationship with him. Because if we don't deal with them, the cracks become chasms, and the judgment for us, if we turn away, will be far greater than the person who ignored God, but didn't have the same chances. So the more you know, the more you're responsible for. The opposite is true as well. The less you know, the less you're responsible for. And this is another sense in which God's anger 
is so just. He never judges us on the basis of what we haven't heard, but always on the basis of what we have. But that doesn't mean that some people are off the hook. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. The point is that God has revealed himself through what he's made, uh, what he's made of the world and how he's made us. He's given all people enough knowledge of himself and his will for them to be accountable for their response. I had never opened a Bible before I was 20 years old. I hadn't been to church and I didn't know the gospel, but I couldn't shake the sense that there was a creator and I was a sinner. I couldn't push away the idea that in refusing to seek him, I was resisting his presence and his will in my life. And when people appear before him in judgment, you will hear that testimony again and again and again. In my heart I knew, but I just didn't want to know. If you feel that in your heart today, I want to urge you to turn. Look to him. Call on him. Deal with the cracks in the foundation of your life while you can hear his voice. So God is angered by people who turn from him. And he's anger, angered by squandered grace. That's the who and the how of God's anger. Now let's look at the what. God's anger is expressed in real consequences. The painful expressions of God's anger in Solomon's life are warnings of the greater expressions of God's anger to come in the final judgment. And even when God's anger is averted through faith, our sins can still lead to costly results. God's anger is expressed in real consequences. Now Solomon came to a point where he didn't believe that anymore. He had known so much blessing, so much grace, so much prosperity that he assumed he could get a pass. The warnings just weren't for him. And so he progressed deeper and deeper into sin. He became hardened in complacency. And amazingly, God graciously appeared to him for a third time with this warning in verse 11. He said, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Even though Solomon's name means peace, and even though he enjoyed great peace, God was stirring up men who would oppose him. The first is introduced in verse 14, Hadad the Edomite. He had fled when David and his army waged war against Edom. And when he made it to Egypt, Pharaoh welcomed him in like a lost brother. Verse 19 just says, Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him in marriage the sister of his own wife. Remember that Solomon's first compromise of faith was his marriage alliance with Pharaoh. They were supposed to be allies. Now we learn that Pharaoh has been harboring Solomon's enemies and providing them with political and economic power to oppose him. Don't you love it when people do that? 
God also raised up an adversary to Solomon in a man named Rezin, the son of Eliada. Verse 25 says of him this, He was an adversary of Israel all the days of Solomon, doing harm as Hadad did, and he loathed Israel and reigned over Syria. So now Solomon has enemies to the south and enemies to the north. And finally, God raises up Solomon's greatest threat, and he's a native Israelite in the center of power. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, occurs in verse 26. He's a servant of Solomon from the tribe of Ephraim, and he was so capable and so hardworking that he rose through the ranks and Solomon put him in charge of all the forced labor in the tribes of Joseph. God sent the prophet Ahijah to him in verse 29 and promised to divide the kingdom and give him leadership over the 10 northern tribes. Because Solomon chose to turn from the Lord, Israel would be torn apart from within and the dynasty that God had promised to David would be reduced to a shell of what it had been. And Solomon never dreamed that day would come. Even after the warnings, even after being told, when you ignore the voice of your conscience and the prompting of the Holy Spirit long enough, you become deaf to what God is trying to shout at you. And Solomon's life is given as a warning to us. If you've turned away from God, or if you feel your heart beginning to turn away from God, hear his voice today. Know that God's anger is expressed in real consequences. Now, I'd like to end by addressing the three kinds of people who might hear this message today. The first person is the one who says, I didn't know. Maybe it's your first time listening. Maybe you just decided to start checking out the Bible and God and these things. And, and maybe you say, would say, I sensed there was a God and I knew I wasn't right with him, but I didn't know there was another way. Know that Jesus can shield you from the anger of God. Know that he took the anger we deserved on the cross so that we could receive God's forgiveness. There's hope in the Savior. Come to him in faith today. The second person who might be listening is the one who says, I did that. I know that I know Jesus. You trust him as the great relief and hope of the scriptures, and you follow him as best you know how. Know that what Jesus did on the cross really did turn away the anger of God. So God is never angry with a believer in the same way God never punishes a believer. A true believer in Christ only knows forgiveness. But even forgiven sins have consequences. And while God never punishes his children in anger, he still needs to discipline us in love. So seek his help in dealing with the cracks before they spread. The third person I want to address is the one who says, I believe in Jesus, but isn't living in a way that's consistent with his will. Hear the warning of Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Ask yourself whether you're ignoring God's warnings. Ask yourself whether you've been lulled into thinking that the sins that you've, that you've been sowing won't reap a harvest. 
Anyone with a garden this summer has experienced this, but if you don't work to pull up the weeds, they're going to take over. And at a certain point, you need to ask yourself whether you're interested in growing a lawn at all. Maybe you're actually a weed farmer pretending to grow a lawn. Maybe all the talk of grass and flowers is just cover for the fact that you love the weeds and you're not willing to give them up. You talk about Jesus and the Bible, but the fact is you love your sin more and you don't want him messing with your garden. Don't put the Lord to the test. Heed his warnings and come to Jesus for life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's sobering to think of one who holds such power, such authority, one who is so pure and so holy. And to know that you become angry at sin, that you release your wrath on the evil of humanity. Thank you that you do that with such great patience. Thank you that you have such a long fuse. Thank you that your judgments are always in accord with your perfect wisdom, self-control, and knowledge of all things. Help us, Father. Help us to hear the warnings. Help us to see the cracks in the foundation of our own lives. Give us the courage to seek your help in dealing with them. If there is complacency, if there is denial, if we can't see, Father, we pray that you would intervene in mercy. Wake us out of our slumber. And thank you, Father, for the great promise that in Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who has taken all of your righteous anger. He has borne it in our place so that we might walk free of it, that we might experience your great forgiveness. May we cling to him and glorify him in all that we do. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see the importance and necessity of God's anger and judgment, but also the incredible mercy and forgiveness that is held out to all who turn to Jesus in faith. If it's raised questions or if you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.